The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. All right. Ezra Nehemiah, our second week. This is our second-to-last book in Jesus' Bible. After this comes Chronicles and then Matthew. So we are coming to the end of this journey. Last week we overviewed this book. We kind of put it into its historical context and then we overviewed the literary flow of the book. And uh, today we've got some big ground to cover to get our hands around the message. To that end, pray with me. Father, I come recognizing my clay potness, and I trust that it is in order to show that the surpassing power comes not from me, but from you. You are the great one who has spoken, and I pray that you would open your word to us now. We are needy. You are the satisfier. You provide exactly what we need, morning by morning mercy, So here we are, wanting to receive more grace. Flow rivers of life into our soul. Speak what we need to hear. If there is hardness that needs to be overcome, break it. Soften us, we plead. Make us vessels through which You pour forth Your glory that others might see and savor a great God, the only God who is over all. May Your favor shine today. For the glory of Christ I ask. Amen. All right. So last week... We fit Ezra and Nehemiah into history. We've got Daniel and Esther. Those are the two books that precede Ezra and Nehemiah. And both Daniel and Esther came before these two key figures in time. But the book of Ezra takes us back in history. The first six chapters catch us up. So, Daniel and Esther are what's going on in Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah is what's going on in Jerusalem. And so the book begins way up in 538 at Cyrus's decree. The book has a, uh, a balanced pattern. Parts of it talk about fixing broken, a broken temple and broken city walls. And both of those are pictures of the broken lives that also need to be readjusted. So this is a book about the need to rebuild the broken temple and city, which itself points to the need to revive the faithless people, all in the hope of full kingdom restoration. This book tells us that restoration hasn't come. So as we read it, our eyes push ahead to what is coming. As I said last week, God may have taken the people out of Babylon, but He now has to take Babylon out of the people. 
And there's a lot of baggage that's still there. This is a book of brokenness, and yet there's hope that we see. So we're going to overview the message in three parts. You can see uh, on the handout, big letter A, big letter B, and then small number three should be big letter C. So you can just uh, pull that over in the outline. Key message in three parts. The present generation has not separated from God's kingdom purposes begun in the past. This is a book designed to help broken people know that God is still with them. Number two, worshiping God and living in accordance with His Word provide the only foundation in order to enjoy kingdom hope. If you separate yourself from God's Word... You separate yourself from any future hope. And then three, God is actively working on behalf of His people in accordance with His kingdom purposes. But His full kingdom restoration has not come. Let's walk through each of these. So one of the purposes of this book seems to be to let God's people know even though they, it seems like they're in darkness, they've returned to the land, enemies abound, they don't have a king, they still feel like they're slaves underneath Persia. Where's the full restoration? It's not here. Even though it may feel that way, God wants them to know that, he hasn't, that they're, as a people, not separated from what He started in the past. And He does this in a handful of ways. First off, He recalls for them Jeremiah's promise. Seventy years you'll be in exile. And with that coming to mind, with it comes at this point Daniel's promise that after the seventy years in exile will come seventy sabbaticals. That is, seventy weeks of years. Seven years times seventy, and then full restoration will come. Seventy years, Jeremiah had said. Open up to Ezra chapter 1. We look at the first set of verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and he put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So if you're connected with that God, feel free. Go up. The Lord has opened the door for you. Now he, the author of this book, sets us up by saying, in order to fulfill the word that God spoke to Jeremiah, Cyrus said, build the temple. Jeremiah had said, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Don't forget that God has made promises and He's faithful to His promises. Right now, I'm at work 
God wants the people to know. Not only that, it mentions Cyrus, Cyrus the king of Persia. That takes us all the way back to Isaiah, where we read this. 150 years before Cyrus is even on the scene, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purposes, saying to Jerusalem, She shall be built. And of the temple you sh- your foundation shall be laid. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Right off the bat, the book opens saying God's in the process of bringing restoration. You'll remember in the book of Isaiah, the mention of Cyrus was only stage one. Stage one was get the people out of Babylon back into the land. Stage two, which would not be performed by Cyrus but by God's servant, would be full-blown restoration, which includes Isaiah 53, reconciliation with God because sins are overcome. That's not this restoration. This is only stage one, but what this book does, right from the beginning, it sets us up for the coming of stage two. This isn't the only way that it says God is remembering you. The book's filled with genealogy. And what genealogy does is it takes the present generation and reaches them all the way back to the past. God is still at work. Then, there's the stress that God had promised to restore after exile. You're in Ezra 1, jump up to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah 1, 8 through 9. God, Nehemiah cries, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If in that place you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God, we're here in exile, but you promised way back to Moses that if your people in the midst of exile would return and humble themselves and pray to you, It's intriguing. He cites, if you look up at verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. That's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. He's reminding God, you're a God who loves those who love you. And yet, he says, "We've we've sinned, we've been cast far away, But you said if we keep your commandments. And in this context, the only commandment that Nehemiah is claiming we're keeping is we're repenting of our sins. He's not bringing anything to the table and yet God's going to look through His cry for mercy and see the repentant heart and grant mercy. Real repentance always brings real mercy and God counts that repentance as commandment keeping. And God says, those who love me that way, I will love. And so God is right from the start wanting the people who are reading this book to feel His love. To know that He's at work. That He's heard the cry of repentance on behalf, coming from the mediators. 
People like Ezra, people like Nehemiah, and God's at work bringing physical restoration. But having physical restoration doesn't mean hearts on a community scale are changed. Much more needs to be done. And that's where we come to the second point. This is a book that says, Worshiping God and living in accordance with His Word provide the foundation and context for kingdom hope. Worshiping God and living in accordance with His book is the only path that leads to life. We need to remember that every day. It's not to the right, not to the left. It's on the path alone. The path that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, it's the hard path. Few go that way. The path where humility is nurtured. The path where selfishness is destroyed. The path where bitterness, we let go of it and turn toward a heart of forgiveness. A path where racism is overcome, where sexism is put down. That's not the easy path. It's not the natural path. It's the right path. This book has some hard things in it. Hard ethically, hard for Christians to figure out what we're supposed to do with it in light of what Ezra and Nehemiah go to in order to lay the, the lines down. Here's the road and you don't go outside of it. They set amazing boundaries spiritually and socially in order to preserve God's people. The community was at a breaking point. Sin had brought them into exile, and now they've returned from exile, and sin is still prevalent. Massive sin. We're going to look at the nature of these sins. And because of that, firm lines are going to be drawn. Lines that are very hard and even difficult to interpret. So, guard yourself from pagan influence. How far will you go to preserve your life when obstacles come in that could easily pull you away? Be holy as I am holy. But the people who were supposed to be holy were getting pulled into the world as they returned to Jerusalem. The walls are down physically in Jerusalem. The temple is not built. So the two pictures that are visibly present are God's presence is not in our midst. He's not in the middle of us. He's not internal. And then all the protection around us is gone. So when God's presence is not there, and there's no guard around our lives, the world just has sway. And so we see the physical temple gone, we see the physical walls around the city absent, and those are two pictures in the book of exactly what Israel's life is like. God's not in their heart, and there's no guard around their heart to nurture holiness. So here's what we get. The holy race, Ezra learns, once he returns, that's what he calls them, the holy seed, they're supposed to be displaying God in their lives, has intermarried with non-believing folk. Pagans 
have infiltrated the community of God. Here's what Ezra says. After all that has come upon us, 70 years of exile because of sin, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we now... By interfaith marriage, it'd be like a Christian marrying a Muslim intentionally. A Christian marrying a Mormon intentionally. Shall we now break your commandments again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not, O God, be angry with us until you've consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before You in our guilt, for none can stand before You because of this. So, on a communal level, not just an individual within the community, multiple members of those who returned, When Ezra shows up in Jerusalem, what he finds is is all these professing believers of Yahweh who have married non-believers, and those non-believers are influencing in such a way that the very purity of the good news, the purity of Israelite faith in the Lord is getting twisted and warped. It doesn't work to put a bad apple in the middle of a whole bunch of good ones and hope that that bad apple will turn good. And this book, one of of the central issues right at the core of it is that that bad apple is reproducing itself. It's like yeast or leaven in bread and and that yeast is just spreading out and everything is expanding everything is getting influenced by it and the very future of a purified remnant is at stake Ezra comes he thinks that he's dealt with it Nehemiah comes years later and the problem persists here's what Nehemiah says Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Wasn't Solomon, you remember that old wise man? What happened to him? He he marries all these foreigners. The problem wasn't the foreign nature of the woman. It was the foreign faith of the women. He married all these foreign women that brought with them their wrong worldviews, their lack of commitment to the Lord, and with that, a conspiracy in their soul to see their own husband overcome. Didn't Solomon... Sin on account of such women, among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. And you think you're more wise, more strong than Solomon? 
Therefore, serious steps were taken in this book. Serious steps that are very hard to read. Steps both spiritually and physically. Steps relationally, socially. What were some of the steps that they took? And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Do you recognize how serious sin is? Ezra says. Sin is what got us into exile. And now all you're doing is kindling the wrath of God, not only against one family, against an entire community. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from your foreign wives. Mass community divorce. For the sake of the name. Everything in the text suggests this is not just a believer married to a non-believer. This is a believer married to a non-believer that has an agenda. And that agenda has already shown its signs in working ill in the home. And not only in one home, in a mass community. Here's how Nehemiah talks. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There's no guard, no protection, and it's resulting in a lot. So Nehemiah shows up. He becomes the governor of the land. He's the political enforcer, whereas Ezra is the high priest. He's the religious enforcer, but the two of them are side by side. Nehemiah is an amazing book to show that a man of politics does not have to separate his faith from his position. It's just one and the same. Nehemiah is a man of God, much like William Wilberforce. Politician saturated with conviction that is surrendered and defined by God Himself. Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their homes. The evil um, Samaritans had been infiltrating and with them their culture and their practices into the heart of Jerusalem. When they began to build the walls, what we read in the book is that this enemy began to make uh, not only accusations to the king of Persia, but they began to threaten verbally, we're going to come against you and destroy all of you. Nehemiah senses the danger. He calls his people in Jerusalem to say, God will fight for us. But then he sets guards all up around the newly walled city. It's it's a picture, all the while, it's a picture of what they should be doing with their souls. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. In those days I saw the Jews. This is so Ezra does 
his thing. He, he cleans out the community. And then Nehemiah comes years later, and things have still not fully changed. That The same influences continue to be there. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to the sons to their sons and take their daughters from your sons or for yourselves. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3 telling Israel what they shouldn't do when they did the conquest under Joshua. Don't give your, your, your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons lest they become a snare to you and the anger of God be kindled quickly and He destroy you from the land. Didn't Solomon, didn't Solomon see the division of the kingdom because of such sin? Didn't the kingdom just get ripped apart? Yes, it did. Verse 27, Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? These verses about divorce are really hard. And I read them and I'm trying to understand how I'm supposed to what I'm supposed to do with them as a believer. Some things are absolutely clear. The very welfare of the entire community was at stake. And that's a very unique situation. It's not just one family. It's an entire community. The entire remnant of God in Jerusalem was at stake of being fully overcome by paganism. So drastic times take drastic measures. Second thing that I notice is that it's very clear that these foreign, non-Yahweh faith spouses were indeed influencing negatively those, the Jews. So you could have, never is a Christian supposed to intentionally marry a non-believer. But God, by His grace, what does He do? Sometimes, as was the case in the first century, there would be two non-believers and all of a sudden, one of the spouses encounters the way, Christianity, and becomes a believer. And the question rises in the New Testament, both in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, what are you supposed to do if you find yourself as a first-generation believer? And your spouse is not a believer. And both... Paul and Peter comment on such a situation. Here's Paul. In accordance with Jesus' exceptions, however we're to read those exceptions in Matthew chapter 5, except in the case of sexual immorality, Paul says, I'm going to share with you something, I, not the Lord. And by that, he's saying Jesus didn't talk about this. He's not saying, uh, this is just me rather than the Word of God. No, it's still the Word of God, 
But he's saying, I'm going to give you some instruction that Jesus didn't directly address in his teaching. You won't find this in the Gospels, he says. And he appears to allow a certain type of divorce in only in certain circumstances. Specifically, when the non-believing spouse separates from the believing spouse. Here's what he says. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Jesus talked about this, he says. To the rest, though, I, not the Lord... That is, he's now going to give some instruction that Jesus didn't say. That if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Hear that. A Christian married to a non-Christian does not give just grounds for divorce. By itself. If a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him. Now that consenting seems more than being a physical presence. This consenting is, I'm going to let you continue to operate as a Christian. I'm not going to be restricting you. I'm not going to force you to do things that would compromise your own new convictions. There's there's a consent of the heart that is empowering the believer in the home to be a believer. That's at least what what I understand Paul saying. If she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Indeed, sticking around could be the very means of grace by which God saves that non believer. We don't enter in with marriage evangelism. You know, I'm going to date this non-Christian in the hope that I will get her or him saved. The Bible would not allow that. But if you find yourself, once two non-believers, now you become a believer, what do you do? You pray that God would give you an unbelieving spouse that is willing, that consents to let you Be a believer in the home and live as a believer should. And so long as you have that kind of a spouse, you stay with them. And all the while praying for their salvation. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But, if the unbelieving partner separates, that is if that unbelieving partner stops consenting to live with her or him. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Of all texts in the Bible, this is the only one that I can find that may indeed parallel Ezra's situation. Either there's no other texts that relate to Ezra's situation, or Paul is actually dealing with the same type of a thing. And how we're to understand Ezra's situation is that he is seeing that on a community scale, 
The level of pagan influence is nurturing greater paganism, and they are not. These unbelievers are in no way consenting in the sense of allowing the faith in Yahweh to be nourished within the community. Rather, they are negatively influencing, and in such a situation, Paul would say, just cause. These are very hard, situ- hard issues. Hard issues for pastors at Bethlehem to work through. And the elders at Bethlehem are even on different, have different convictions about divorce and remarriage. Ezra and Nehemiah ground their conviction in the Bible. They go back to Moses and say, Moses said, you cannot intermarry with them, lest they be a snare with you. So I don't think Ezra and Nehemiah are in sin in doing what they're doing. And I'm also at least hesitant to think that Paul is having a different view on marriage than Moses was. Even though Moses allowed certain things due to the hardness of hearts. So I can't can't answer all of this this morning. But I wanted at the very least to say... I think, we can, I think we can align Ezra and Nehemiah's practice with Paul's statement if we see Paul's meaning of non-believer separation from a believing spouse to include not only physical desertion. If they don't want to stay with you, then you're, you're now free. You're not enslaved in this marriage anymore. But not only physical desertion, but that it could also include controlling influence that forces the believer to sin or that restricts the believer from living out her faith, that that would also be considered not consenting to live with. That there may be a tie here between 1 Corinthians 7 and what Ezra, Nehemiah are calling for in their book. So does separate and divorce mean the same thing? Does being free equate to free to remarry? That would be another question. Paul uses the language of divorce, separation, and free with two different free words in 1 Corinthians 7. And honestly... Um, the most godly, well-equipped scholars are differing on that issue. And different scholars are being aligned with by our elders at Bethlehem. It's tricky. It's tricky. And you could have a justified divorce 
by that illegal separation in God's eyes and not necessarily, potentially, have a freedom to remarry in God's eyes. And that the ideal in that, even in the legal separation, would be that God would grant restitution, reconciliation. The, I mean, it, it's hard. Even in Ezra, the explicit statement is made that children are involved in certain situations. But I, I'm struggling to see, for example, that um, I'm struggling to see what it seems as though the separation language in Ezra and Nehemiah is divorce language. And Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, but all this is complicated, and I didn't expect that I would be able to cover it all this morning. Um, we have situations right now going on in our church where the elders are struggling to be in agreement. And that's, that's a hard place to be. Um, divorce is such a broken situation. But a broken relationship with God is even more vital than a broken relationship with a spouse. And the picture sometimes fails. By God's grace, the reality never breaks. He is holding us. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I have given them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And the... So, um, your question regarding how to define terms... I could walk through and clarify where I stand, but we don't have that time. And also, uh, even the Bethlehem faculty would be talking for a long time trying to come to agreement on many of these issues. But I couldn't get through Ezra and Nehemiah without opening the can and trying to at least give you a sense for how I think we can reconcile it even within the Bible, connecting it even with Paul's statements against divorce. From a political side, yes, but not before God. That marriage is constant from Adam to the future. 
the question with Nehemiah, was it really God saying to the Lord, or was it Nehemiah? Right, and that's where I, that's, that, where they grounded in the law, it, and the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah are the ones giving us the book, these are the memoirs of Ezra and the memoirs of Nehemiah, I have trouble questioning their ethics. And, and I, and it, well, my, with respect to, is it prescriptive, the divorce texts, I don't think we could find any situation within the church today that would compare at all. The church has gone global. The people of God have been, are, are not a mixed, rem, a mixed uh, community of remnant and rebel, and it's not connect well even this i don't the the seed is ethnically restrictive whereas the church is not so those are those are distinctions that are i i wouldn't see any prescription going on in Ezra and Nehemiah but i'm trying to understand the ethical uh groundedness of what they were doing, trying to put it on the map of how, how to understand marriage and divorce. And I'm, and the bridge I was, that may be present, that's what I was trying to identify, a potential bridge, a bridge that may be present between how Ezra and Nehemiah were thinking and how Paul's thinking in 1 Corinthians 7. The question there, though, becomes, what does it mean to be separate? Can you verbally say, I'm still with you, but emotionally and, and spiritually be abusing and put a person in a dangerous spot, even though you're declaring... You're, so, so my point is that there would be a context wherein the very actions and lifestyle of the non-believer are declaring they have already broken off the marriage vows and they're not living them out. Physically present even willfully saying, I'm not going to let this marriage go, and yet, with every step of their lives, destroying the marriage. I, I think, though, to begin with, you have to start with what's being said. And, this is, and what's being said is, if the unbeliever says leave, or says, says I'm leaving, you let them go. Uh, that's the scenario that's presented. And the question is, what does it mean that they're saying it? Could they be saying it in their actions rather than in their words? And that, so that, all I'm saying is there's a godly, godly Christians are wrestling to understand Paul, wanting to submit to Paul rightly. And there's, 
how, how to do it is not easy here. This is one of those things that Peter would affirm. Some of what Paul says is not easy to understand. But we don't... We are, but, I, but I, we, can't do it. we can't do it here today. But I had to address, I had to at least bring up the issue. Um, At the, at the foundation, what this text would be calling for is to recognize that there are obstacles to God-centeredness. We need to be mindful of those obstacles. And different contexts take different levels of engagement to overcome those obstacles. This is an extreme engagement. Along with setting up boundaries, what Ezra and Nehemiah do is they interpret and apply God's word. They say disloyalty in relationship with God is measured by the word of God. And so they're constantly going back to the word and comparing it to people. I'm going to move on to the next one. God's word must be read and applied and must lead to regular renewal in one's personal and corporate relationship with the Lord. This is so... uh, Trying to answer... um, Trying to answer the obstacles from within, this is saying you battle it starting starting with your morning devotions. The favor of God was with Ezra because he set his heart to study the Torah of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach both statute and rule in Israel. The favor of God was on Ezra because he set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach in that order. This book is loaded with these calls back to God's Word, and it just saturates the people in the Word. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law, and the other religious leaders helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly as they gave the sense so that the people could understand it rightly. And the people, when they heard the word of God, the Lord nurtured their hearts so that they were broken. They wept. And then the Levites calmed all the people. Be quiet, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. Celebrate that God has met you. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to the poor to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They had an encounter with the living Word of God. And Ezra and Nehemiah's set up, as dark as it may seem, as far as God may be, as hard as it has been in my home, 
Where repentance is, there can be real mercy. Right now, open your book, he says. Start pursuing your God and see things change. The rest of the people and the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of the Lord, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. That's what the people do. They turn, they, res- they seek restoration. So, worshiping God and living in accordance with His Word provides the context for kingdom hope. This is just setting, setting up the people. Kingdom is coming. Kingdom is coming. God preserves the people in the book of Esther. Here He restores them to the land and He's now giving them just these ever-present reminders of where everything will find its center. That is in God's book. And then the last point is God is actively working on behalf of His people in accordance with His kingdom purposes, but full restoration hasn't come. Over and over again, one of the encouraging parts of this book is just the declaration of God's grace, mercy, favor, favor, favor. One of the great chapters that I just love to read in the Bible is Nehemiah chapter 9. There's such great prayers in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. And over and over again, he just walks through the history of Israel and he just says, God's mercy is what preserved us. Verse 19, in the midst of the golden calf episode, Nehemiah 9, 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 27, when they rebelled more in the land, according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Even when they did evil again, Yet when they turned back and cried to you, verse 28, according to your mercies, you delivered them. Verse 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of the people, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Over and over again, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This book goes out of its way to stress God's favor. The eye of their God was on the elders and they did not stop them. The, they granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord was on him. By the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. The king granted what I asked for the good hand of God was upon me. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives. The wall was finished. Why? They perceived that this was the work, that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made the heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worship you. Now, how does one enjoy this favor? This is a striking part of this book. To the humble, he shows himself humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
The enjoyment of God's favor comes by dependence, a heart of humility on his book. This is not any, any type of um, self-exaltation. This is people get radically surrendered to your God, and God loves those who are radically surrendered to him. Those who are satisfied in him, he is being exalted, and he delights in that. On the first day of the first month, Ezra came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was on him. Why? Because Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Because he set his heart on the law, because he was dependent, not a man who was the authority, but a man who was under authority, under the book. He read it, he studied it, and he found himself... As he put the book under a microscope, this is how I like to think about my study. I, look, I put the book under a microscope and then I find myself underneath the microscope. Where the book is all of a sudden looking at me and showing me what's in my soul and giving me greater clarity about the nature of my God and helping me align as I'm supposed to. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake him. God's mercy and grace are the fuel that enables the quest for God. And this is where I just was in Nehemiah 9. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake your people. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. The character of God is unswerving. In the midst of darkness, we cry for mercy. And those who cry from repentant hearts find Him. There's no sin that is too serious for that mercy to not overcome. There is no desperate situation too deep for that mercy to not reach. So as we walk through this book, it's just calling us, remember the favor of God and plea for mercy. Plead for it. Even though restoration has not been realized, this book is setting us up to say it's going to come, but it will only come for those who are dependent. Radical situations to overcome obstacles to lack of God-centeredness, to overcome obstacles to God-centeredness in this book. Radical steps. Building up the walls of the city in order to guard from outward obstacles. Setting up the temple in order to nurture in the soul the very presence of God. You come to the very end of the book. Here's the last chapter. Nehemiah 13. Foreigners are still present. A priest is living in the temple. The community is not providing for the priest. The community is profaning the Sabbath. Interfaith marriage is continuing. The priesthood is just messed up. And Nehemiah prays, last words of the book, Remember me, O God, for good. This book is is demanding more. It's demanding a sequel. It's demanding, is, there, is this where we're going to end our history? Is this as far as we get? 
The Old Testament will not stop there. It set us up to say the presence of God has to be central. The heart has to be guarded. The Word of God is what is in the central. So far as the Word of God is central, the presence of God will be real. Sin is serious. God is serious. He takes His Word seriously. So we pray, remember us, O God, for good. That's not the last book of the, of the, of the Old Testament. The next book begins with Adam. First word. It's going to take us all the way back to Genesis. It's going to recall all the history of Israel and let this present audience know that more is to come. So the next two weeks, it's really just setting us up to celebrate the incarnation, to set up Christmas. Because that's, that's what happens. We get up longing for the presence of God and longing for the King that's come. That's what Chronicles is going to do. And then we're going to turn the page and find Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. So it's a beautiful way to climax here this semester. So I hope you come back. Father, I pray that you would be our God and that you would be our help. How much we need you. Thank you for mercy. Blood-bought mercy. Real repentance lets us taste it. Uphold us and help us, I pray. Guide us to clarity on tough issues. Help us walk in the way that we should go. In Christ I ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.